Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's message was given by First Pres Interim Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Tassie Green. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 which you will find in the Old Testament section of your Pew Bibles, beginning on page 644 or on screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, illumine these words by your Spirit, that we might hear what you would have us hear, and be who you would have us be. For the sake of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we continue the series that we've begun looking at the Bible called The Bible Is. We've looked at the Bible as a light, as a feast, as medicine, and today we look at the Bible as a weapon. Now when you hear that title, what comes to mind? What kind of weapon and for what kind of battle jumps into your mind? Do you compare the Bible perhaps to a six-shooter drawn in an Old West gunfight? Or perhaps a lightsaber in the battle between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader? Or maybe even a medieval joust between knights on horseback? I think that's probably only if you regularly read the King James Bible, that you picture that one. Now, maybe those of you who are raised learning the scripture about the full armor of God, that comes to mind. You picture a knight's majestic silver blade flashing as soldiers and army parry and thrust in an epic duel, maybe something out of uh, the Narnian Chronicles. Ephesians 6 is where we read about the armor of God. Let's look at that. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness 
As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, perhaps some of you do or did come from such a Christian household that you even had for your kids or grandkids little sets of the full armor of God, specialty that you can buy online. I confess, I bought such a set for my son at a church rummage sale, where else? Because the theme for his age four birthday party was going to be knights and princesses. Of course, if you give a kid armor and you put a plastic sword in their hand, what are they gonna do? Lots of sword fights. They're gonna poke and slap plastic at each other, which misses the point of the armor of God entirely, right? My bad. But especially because when you buy these, the advertisement says that it is to pass on Christian character. I'm not sure how that helps, but let's note the full purpose of the armor of God in Scripture. It's to stand against the devil, to quench his flaming arrows, Ephesians said, to withstand evil and to stand firm yourself. There's nothing I read in there about actively seeking out to fight other people. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is how it puts it in verse 17. It's not meant to be used to advance on others, to attack them, to push them back. I fear that is what Christians have often done with Scripture, have done it time and again over the ages. In fact, some Bible passages are tough for us to read today because they've been used to create or defend anti-Semitism, slavery, racism, homophobia, sexism, just to name a few. There's tricky passages in the Bible, right, that we're not sure what to deal with or how God speaks to us through them. I think first of the Gospel of Matthew and Acts, where it talks about that Jews killed Jesus. These are the passages that have been used, especially during Holy Week over the years as we hear them. They have incited a much higher incidence of anti-Semitism and hate crimes. Or if we go back further to Genesis, there is a bunch of tricky passages in there in our dysfunctional families that are part of God's story, part of our story. The curse of Ham has been used out of context to uphold slavery and racism. It's been used to insist that the Bible says that is how God ordered people within society. Or in Genesis, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as other letters of Paul later on. We struggle with understanding them in context. They've been used specifically against people in the LG plus community. Some believe that the Bible is clear about prohibitions against homosexuality. Others disagree. But what we have seen is that these Bible passages get used to thump people over the head, much like my son's plastic sword, but more damaging. That's why these six passages are actually nicknamed the clobber passages. I hate it that part of our Bible is known as clobber passages. Last month, when we were talking together at Pastries with the Pastor, it was a cold day, a very cold day, but 40 of you showed up to talk about our neighborhood, who are our neighbors, what, is the, what are the generational shifts, 
what are the demographics, what are what we call the local predicament that God has placed us here to be part of. And in your members, in your attenders, a school nurse and a social worker each talked about the epidemic, the levels of depression and anxiety that teens face. It's just skyrocketed since COVID. And then when you add on to that, the rejection experienced by LG plus youth. One study found that LG plus young adults who report high levels of parental rejection are eight times more likely to report attempting suicide and six times more likely to report high levels of depression. And less than a third of LG plus youth report that they have any affirming space or people in their lives. Regardless of what you think about what the Bible says about it, this is a crisis for our young people. Our sense of identity, of being loved and lovable is connected to how others treat us, how they have loved us, how they support us through very difficult times in our lives, and whether people of faith have loved us or not, how they've used scripture. In Genesis, something that's personal to me, who can forget the story of Eve's eating the apple and offering it to Adam? It keeps popping up again and again in scripture. 1 Timothy 2.12, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man she is to keep silent. Ooh. It's led to sexism, strong feelings about women's leadership in church. At times when I have gone into interview, not at Presbyterian churches, people have asked me, how do you defend being a female pastor? That's if they're brave enough to say it to my face. I usually say to them, oh, I've actually thought about this. Let's have breakfast together and we'll talk about it over a breakfast of bacon and eggs. They never get my joke. So what's my joke? Well, Leviticus 11.7, the pig is unclean for you. Of their flesh you shall not eat. Orthodox Jews have prohibited eating dairy and meat together from Exodus and Deuteronomy. You shall not boil a kid in a mother's milk. Yet we Christians often eat pork, we eat meat and dairy together all the time. By the way, the Levitical holiness codes also prohibit Beards, tattoos, wearing mixed fabrics together. So those of you who have your winter down coat and might be wearing cotton or wool, you're in trouble with me. And of course, those uh, who work on the Sabbath are instructed to be stoned. So I'm in big trouble today, right? I'm a Bible nerd. I look at these things. So when I joke about eating eggs and bacon for breakfast, it usually goes right over their heads. But it makes me laugh, which counts. So I wonder, though, where have we received our ideas of which passages matter most? Which are okay to flex on? Which should be enforced? Which should be taught? Which should be used as weapons? And some are just passed on by. What is our tradition? I don't know where it came from. It's worth exploring. As we've talked about, what's written in the Bible has a context, it has a cultural event or a practice to which the author was often responding, sometimes even reacting, as well as seeking the Lord's word. We always ask, what is God's word for us today? So which laws and holiness codes do we agree to keep and why? 
which have we discarded over time, deciding they might be cultural, no longer apply to us because of what Paul calls our freedom in Christ. You know, Paul is one of the people that when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to have a one-on-one with. I just have to talk with Paul. I have to ask him, did you mean to give women and others such a hard time, or was it just your disciples who came after you? I don't really know. But I wonder, do hardcore disciples realize that few of us are ever won over to our great big God of love by proof texting, by taking certain verses, by hitting people over the head with them, or by shoving the Bible in their face, by holding a sign? I believe that few people were ever pointed at, poked, judged into the kingdom of God. When we judge, we often judge ourselves. I think of a little kid's retort when someone points at them and makes fun of them. Do you remember what kids might say? One finger's pointing at me, but the other three are pointing back at you. Right? Kids get it right. If you don't figure it out, look at it. It's way more effective when we are loved and welcomed into the arms of Jesus over time. That's what I call saying yes to God's yes to us. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, wrote this. The biblical way is not to present us with a moral code and tell us to live up to this, nor is it a system of doctrine to say, think like this and you'll live well. Instead, you can see this on the screen, the biblical way is to tell a story. It takes place on solid ground. It's peopled with men and women that we recognize as being much like us. And then they invite us, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human. This is what is involved in entering and maturing as human beings. Jesus had a way when he came to people or people came to him, accusing one another or accusing him. He met with them, he listened to them, and he often turned their view around if they were willing to pay attention. Every time naysayers fought Jesus with scripture, and they did, he never answered back the way that they expected. Even though they tried to back him into a corner again and again and again, he would open the door and let sunlight flood into the matter, into the dark corners. I discovered that perhaps Jesus only quoted Bible passages in debates two times, in two situations, against religious leaders and against the devil. Hmm, that might be telling. He doesn't use scripture to attack ordinary people. He leads with listening and with love. You know, there are a few verses in the gospel that spell out the challenge of what it means to follow Jesus more than when he tells us in Matthew 5, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And there's the challenge, right? And Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, forgive us our debts or our trespasses if you prefer, but he says, as you as we forgive others. In the same way we forgive others, we will be forgiven. Or not. Scripture's pretty clear on that. That's the standard, insisting that we let the Word of God and God's Holy Spirit convict and not go around pointing fingers, but loving, forgiving, leading with those. 
I find when we spend all our time poking and slashing at each other's, we've stopped following the Holy Spirit's prompt to notice and repent of the sin in our own lives first. Instead, we fixate on what others do wrong, especially conveniently those sins that maybe we don't ourselves struggle with all the time. It's the easy way out, and it's called moralism. Peterson continues, moralism is a threat because we can construct a moral life that makes us feel safe and secure and guilt-free. Moralism is a life in which I have no need of a saving, grace-giving God. Moralism works from strength, not from weakness, and that's the opposite of the gospel. When we're on our moral high horse, we use some passages to other people. What do I mean by that? To make them feel that they're not us. They are other. They are outcast, unclean, unwelcome, unlovable. In order to make ourselves feel better, bigger, purer, stronger, more Christian. And that's opposed to Jesus' way, which was to one another people. His commandment to love one another. It's repeated 16 times in the Gospels. He loved one another all the way to the cross. You know Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he shared this, John 13. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. It was so important to him that it was one of his parting messages, love one another. It's a command. It's 59 times in the New Testament that we one another people. It's worth looking up to see what kind of instructions for life. So if there's ever a moment where we find ourselves going out of our way to use scripture against another, to twist it away from God's love story, to twist it away from pointing to Jesus, and to point instead to other agendas, then we're misusing scripture. We're using it as a weapon, a way that it wasn't designed. It's not meant to be a weapon with which we poke and prod and slash at other people until we draw blood, until they experience rejection or even religious trauma. No matter what we think is wrong with others, or perhaps for some of you, the next generation, what we think might be wrong with people's behavior or actions, I wonder, as we look at scripture again, as we read what it says and what it doesn't say, can we commit to following Jesus' way to love, to leading with loving one another, especially for our youth, for our neighborhood? When we get in these spats with one another, it reminds me, there was a mom whose picture went viral. She posted a picture. Her two kids were fighting with one another, and so she put on an extra-large T-shirt over them, 2XL. They had to wear it together for the afternoon, and in big phrase across the front, it said, I love you. So they had to figure out how to work together in order to play and even survive for the afternoon. The bottom line is that Jesus commands us to love one another. Some may say, wait, what about Ephesians 7, that armor of God? Don't you remember? We're to stand, we're to fasten the belt of truth around our waist. We're to take 
stand on the Bible, stick to our principles, not give in, they might say. That's actually not one of Jesus' commands. There's no sacrament around rebuke or judging other people. When Jesus gives us a command, that's how we create the sacraments. He tells us to do it. So we've baptized, we give the Lord's Supper. In some denominations, they share foot washing. None of those look like our rebuking one another. Now, the Holy Spirit may work through those in the process, but that's the Holy Spirit's job. The way I read this passage is that we're not really the best ones to rebuke usually anyway. That's often why people say that the church is full of hypocrites. And we could answer, well, there's always room for one more. Come on in. (laughs) But it's such a big issue for the next generation. Uh, Recent polls that I shared at Pastries with the pastor and with your leaders were that of the three top things that the next generation is concerned about is that one of them, the millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, are all concerned that the church be a place of safety, of acceptance, because the church hasn't always been that. For them, it even outranks that there's a place like this sanctuary where we hold a worship service. That's a big generational shift. It doesn't mean that they don't want to worship God, but they want to make sure that when they enter into the sanctuary, it will be safe. So the way I read this passage is that as we fasten that belt of truth around ourselves, our concern is ourselves. There's another picture of a little girl that went viral when her mom was trying to help her fasten her car seat. She's probably less than two. She said to her mom, worry about your own self. That's pretty good. So even in the midst of what we think is right or wrong with others, how might we worry about our own selves and show love to one another? When we're concerned, I encourage all of us to speak more often to God about that person, to spend more time in genuine loving prayer about them, bringing their name and their well-being before Jesus, more time than the amount of time we spend speaking to them about God's standards or God's judgment. I also find that God changes us through our prayers because we need this saving, grace-giving God too. And we can hear from Isaiah 2, which we heard this morning, that God's plan for redeeming creation is that one day, God will bring peace based on God's ways, God's paths, and God's judgment alone. Listen to this part again. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. He shall judge between the nations. He shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. God has a peace-filled future in mind for all people and all nations, which looks very different than our present. And as we navigate it, the word of God is to be our armor. We put on our feet the gospel of peace, it says. And what's that for? The gospel of peace is in order to carry the good news of Jesus to others. Can we unify as Christians, as a church, around that? sharing good news, new life that's possible in Christ 
as we treat one another as human, respect, valued, humans whom God thinks are beloved, forgiven sinners in Jesus Christ. As many of you have memorized John 3.16, for God so loved the world that God gave his only son, so everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But did you also memorize John 3.17? Indeed, God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is what the sword of truth, the word of God, is for. Sharing good news, clearing the way to share the good news of Jesus' saving gospel of peace, loving one another, and loving the whole world in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.